uh, Nadim, uh, that is, uh, it's, yeah, th it, there will be fewer, few greater privileges for me than to get a microphone off you after that. So thank you. Great stuff. Uh, guys, uh, this evening, uh, how do you follow that? Um, but the word of God is powerful. So that is how we're going to follow that. God's going to speak to us. Um, I want to start, if you'll permit me, by saying something pretty deliberately provocative, controversial, shocking, maybe a little bit annoying, maybe a little bit might threaten my job, a little bit nerve-wracking, you're all on the edge of your seat. This is what I'm going to say, but hear me out. Here's what I'm going to say. I'm going to go out on a limb and say that if the Apostle Paul, the guy who we've been thinking about writing this letter, Ephesians, if the Apostle Paul or Jesus of Nazareth heard that our vision for the future of Church Central was that we were going to exist in three churches, that we were going to launch into three churches, start three churches, and they heard that, I want to suggest to you that they would be disappointed at best and furious at worst. You on the edge of your seat? <laughs> Here's why. If our vision was merely to see churches exist, as in that there are churches instead of there aren't, or our vision was simply to see churches launch, start, that would be a pitifully small vision for us to have for the church of Jesus of Nazareth. If we simply were dreaming of the day where there'd be churches still existing or having begun, I don't think they'd be impressed at all. Jesus of Nazareth did not walk up a hill with a cross on his back and die to see churches exist. Jesus of Nazareth did not walk up a hill with a cross on his back and die to see churches start. The church in the Bible is called the bride of Christ. Not his project, not his task, not his thing to do, his bride, his beloved bride. He loves her. He adores her. And so Jesus' vision for the church is not that she might merely start or merely exist, or merely organizationally reshuffle to be three autonomous churches that might become four if a site becomes a church, and a, whatever it is. His vision is that churches would begin and exist and be beautiful and flourish and be radiant and shine and rise up and be glorious. That's the vision of Jesus for his bride. Yeah? And isn't that our heart too? When we're in our right minds, when we're in our wrong minds, we just tut at the church. But when we're in our right minds, our heart, isn't it, is to see the church rise up and be beautiful. Not just to churn out another decade of church. Like, who can be bothered to do that? But to see church done even slightly more like Jesus intended her to be. Isn't that what our heart beats for? Because I'll tell you what, in my experience, nothing, nothing is like the church when she gets it even almost a bit right, you know? And there's nothing more ugly than the church, maybe a lot of you know this, when the church gets it really wrong. That's about the ugliest thing on the planet. 
But there is nothing more beautiful than when the church gets it even vaguely right. There was a visitor to one of our sites recently who uh, is an atheist, uh, part of the Freemasons. And uh, he came into one of our sites and uh, I have to say, I can't remember who was preaching. It, it might well have been me, so my bad. But I think he was pretty unimpressed with the preaching. Apologies. Uh, I think he was pretty non-fussed by the worship, though I'm sure it was epic. Don't know why it's Church Central, it's epic. Uh, I think he thought that the, the coffee was about six out of ten. But at the end of the meeting, this visitor said to one of the leaders in our church, how do you do it? And then he said, oh, what do you mean? And, he, and this person coming into the church afresh, said, how do you do it? How do you have so many different types of people in the church, and yet it seems to be that there's a sense of togetherness. It's almost like a family. How do you do it? I think they said, wow, how do you do it? And that's what happens when the church of Jesus doesn't just launch and exist, but even gets a little bit towards being the bride, the beautiful bride. Don't you long that in your site slash church, that would be the more common experience. That people would come in and say, wow, how do you do it? Not because we're great at it, but because Jesus is great at it and we're his bride. And if that's your passion, then Ephesians chapter 4, feel free to open it if you want to. The verses we're looking at will come up on the screen. Ephesians chapter 4 is your chapter, okay? If you care about the church... Ephesians chapter 4 is your chapter because Paul is writing to a church that's already launched. It's already had its like vision meeting. It's already existed for a while, but he refuses to settle for a church that just exists. He says, no, you're the bride. You can be more. You can be glorious. You can be radiant. You can be in the language of this weekend. You can be mature. And so he writes to this church and he outlines a series of characteristics of a beautiful church. And how you get to be a beautiful church. And we saw this morning, didn't we, that with Jonathan, that a beautiful church needs to be united. United needs to have unity. There needs to be oneness. Do you remember these verses from this morning in light of the, what was it? One God, one hope, one spirit, one this, one that, one love, one, you know, whatever it is. In light of the oneness... The church of Jesus is to be one. In a world of disarray and discord and disunity, the church of Jesus, us, are to model something beautifully different. We're to be one. We're to be united. But we need to be very, 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 we're short of time, but very careful about how we apply teaching in the church on oneness. We need to be very careful. In Ephesians chapter 4, after all these verses, one, 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 one this, one that, one this, another word is used by Paul, and he says this word, however, you can always see his finger coming out of the Bible at you, however, yes, oneness, but it's like there's a real danger that we as Church Central or the church in Ephesus or the church worldwide can hear Yes and amen, good stuff, teaching on us being one and totally misapply it in a way that leaves us not the beautiful bride, but a really ugly bride. However, and so the question tonight, I think, is this. What sort of oneness makes a church beautiful? 
What sort of oneness, togetherness, unity should we be seeking to establish in Church Central? Here's uh, one slightly interesting example of oneness. Uh, This, if you can see it, is a North Korean military parade. Now, if you want to see oneness on display, this is your event. I don't know how easy tickets are to come by. But this is your event because you could say that on display here is a phenomenal degree of oneness. Every arm, every leg moves in perfect unison. The glory that's on display in a North Korean military parade is oneness, but it's a very particular vision of oneness. Oneness as sameness. It's not so much unity, but uniformity on display. And just to clarify, it'd be awkward on a night on diversity to sound like I'm down on a nation. (laughs) Like, Jesus loves North Korea and his many people there. So it's not an anti-that nation thing. But actually, there's a, a slightly darker thing going on in that nation around oneness, if you know about it. That there's this vision of top-down authoritarian enforced sameness, where difference is a threat. It's why the uh, latest election results in North Korea, if you can call it that, were uh, there's a 99.9% electorate turnout, pretty good. No arguments about Brexit would have happened if there was that many of us went out and voted. That's quite a lot. And then of that 99.9%, 100% of people voted for the one ruling party because on every ballot in every region, there was just one name on the ballot. Oneness, they've got phenomenal oneness. But it's a oneness of sameness where really the state is the big idea. The state, the state doesn't exist to serve the people. The people exist to serve the collective, the whole, the group, the state. Now, is that the sort of oneness we want? There's a novelist called uh, Adam Johnson, who really importantly isn't the disgraced Sunderland footballer. If you're a football fan, just to clarify, because I'm about to quote this person favorably, and it's important you know it's not him I'm talking about. But Pulitzer Prize winning novelist Adam Johnson did this novel about life in North Korea, and he went to North Korea several times on research trips. And he said that this vision, he called it radical collectivism. Radical collectivism. This, not simply that the group is important, but the, the group, the collective, that's everything. And therefore, any difference, individuality, creativity is a threat and is squashed. And he said this about his observations in North Korea. He said, there are only four shoe styles for men in North Korea. Like Zaki Bavington, wherever he is. Like he's probably worn more than that today, Right? <laughs> Okay, am I right? Yeah, nearly, this weekend at least. There's only one shade of lipstick for women. It is so surreal, he says, to see the sameness of everyone. I'd walk through these crowds of people and they wouldn't dare to look at me. It was a risk. So it was really clear that not a single spontaneous thing could happen there. The Bible says we've got to be one. It's very important we understand what sort of oneness. Otherwise, our worship times would need to look different this weekend, wouldn't they? That brilliant spontaneity, 
songs bursting out, different languages, dancing, all of that would need to go, wouldn't it? And to be very clear what we are talking about when we say oneness. Now, what our culture has done is we've gone way different to this, way different to radical collectivism. We in our culture, don't we, we acknowledge the value of the individual. So that's, that's right, isn't it? And that's, uh, just to affirm this, that's a Christian idea to value the individual. Like we have a God who leaves the 99 and goes after the one individual, don't we? Praise God, he came after me, coming after you. He comes after the one. He doesn't say, no, you stupid millennials. It's not all about you. I'm with the 99. He sees the individual and he loves the individual. He made every individual in the image of God, which is why if you go back to Birmingham and you cannot heal the epidemic of homelessness in our city, but you can, as one individual, speak to one homeless person, that is the kingdom of God being at hand, because individuals matter to this God. But what our society has done in unmooring itself from its Christian roots is it's gone beyond individuals matter to individuals are everything. And we've cut ourselves off from any group, any family, any whole, any state, any nation. And if I feel it and I want it, I'm going to do it. This is me. And we'll make a song about it. And the film's fine. But with this is me, and I'll do, if I feel it, I can do it. It doesn't matter if it decimates my entire family. I can just do it, because this is me. North Korea have gone for radical collectivism. I wonder if we've gone for what commentators call radical individualism. We've gone beyond individual as important and gone to individual as everything. Now, why is this like sociological discussion about cultures important for Church Central? Here's why. In any culture, on any issue, family, drunkenness, sex, anything, the church of Jesus has two, not one, two massive dangers all the time. And one of them's really obvious and one of them's subtle. The obvious danger for the church of Jesus any time on any issue is that we assimilate to the host culture that we find ourselves in. And we just christianify whatever the culture does so we that would look like we do radically individualistic christianity where if i feel it and i love it and i get the shivers when it's preached then i'm in if it's hard i'm out this is me jesus is lord this is me radical individualistic me 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 christianity that's a danger but i think that's an obvious danger because we're waking up to the realization as the church, aren't we, that me, me, meism is not good, right? Here's the second danger, and it's more subtle. On any issue, in any culture, the church, in the name of not assimilating to the naughty culture with its bad stuff, we can go so far away from it saying, no, we reject that. We're the church of Jesus. We're to be different. And we can wander not to biblical opinion but to just reactionary we go too far the other way and we think we're being faithful because we're miles away from the naughty culture with its individualism but we end up in it's a danger a radical collectivism where because we know individuals aren't everything we say individuals are nothing it's only about the group so therefore difference is a threat and individuality is a threat and creativity is a threat 
and we try to force it top down. Oneness, get on board. The church, that's a danger. Here's why this is relevant from Ephesians 4. This is why what Paul says about the church is flipping genius, as the Spirit-inspired Bible often is. Genius. Paul calls the church, in verse 11, a body. A body. There is so much depth in that word, not least that we are literally the hands and feet of God on the planet. How's God going to touch the world? Through his body. That's how you touch stuff. And that's us. So there's so much depth in that word. But tonight I want you to just see how this vision of church as we go forward as Church Central saves us from either extreme. Do you see that? First of all, it saves us if we remember we're a body from radical individualism. Because it would be totally thick, wouldn't it, if one part of a body cut itself off from the body and went off on its own thinking it was going to be great and flourish and fulfill its potential and find itself. Because what happens to a part of a body when you cut it off from the body and put it far away from the body? Medics? Yeah. Like it dies and rots and stinks and does nothing. And it's forgotten. And even the greatest body parts in history, Lionel Messi's left foot, right? Uh, Jimi Hendrix's fingers, Mother Teresa's hands, Martin Luther King's conscience, heart, voice, Albert Einstein's brain, my abs, <laughs> right? <laughs> that sentence ended with Albert Einstein's brain <laughs> would be nothing, would be nothing, would be nothing, would be cut off on its own, rotting and dying and being forgotten if they had not been attached to a body, right? And the same is true with us. We find our greatness. Young people, you will find your greatness not by swanning off and trying to be great, You'll find your greatness attached to the bride of Jesus, the body of Christ, because he is great. So you stay with him. And yet, the, the, the body idea saves us from radical collectivism as well, where creativity and individuality and difference is crushed and smudged and blurred and silenced so that we're all the same. Lionel Messi's left foot has achieved more than any left foot in history. It would not have achieved a thing if every bit of Lionel Messi was also a left foot. Can you picture that? Can you picture that? Running around on a football pitch. It would achieve nothing. Lionel Messi's left foot, listen to this if you're gifted, is nothing if Lionel Messi's right foot, his hands, his eyes, his knees, his little legs, his ankles, his mind don't play their unique and different part as part of the body. Do you see that? And so here, the sort of oneness in radical collectivism is a oneness that enforces sameness. And in the body, it's a oneness, Jonathan was right, but it's a oneness that only thrives in difference, where every single bit of this body does its own thing that Jesus has gifted him or her for and does it brilliantly 
And it doesn't have to be the same as the person next to you. It has to be you attached to the body. Do you see that? And that is the sort of oneness that Jesus walked up a hill with a cross on his back to die for. Where every single one of us plays our different part. Unity in diversity. A body where we all have a role. Now, how on earth do we get there with not loads of time? How on earth do we not just say that and go back to Birmingham and default to either extreme? How do we become a body where everyone flourishes? Paul says, just quickly, you need to have your thinking right about two specific groups of people in the body. And the first person or group of people you need to have your thinking right about is leaders. Leaders in the body. Now you say, hang on, Rich, we were just going well. We were doing a talk about everyone playing their part. And now you've gone to like the check shirt wearing, like secret meeting, leader, badge wearing, title, few. Right? But just be careful. You need to see firstly about leaders. Leaders are a gift from God to the church according to Ephesians 4. Paul wants to see a beautiful church. So does God. So he gives leaders. We're in a moment in our culture where we're very cynical about leadership. Who's loving the Conservative Party leadership contest? Who's loving that? Like we're cynical about it because for many good reasons, we're cynical about leadership. But don't throw the baby out of the bathwater. The Bible says, verse 11, that God is a gracious father giving gifts And what does he give or who does he give as a gift? He gives leaders. It says uh, he gives uh, apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastor, teachers. These leaders with a particular gifting for particular things that are given to the church. And we, if we're to be mature, where everyone plays our part, and we'll get to that, need to receive the presence of our God, which is leaders. Terry Virgo cautions wisely when he says, let us not fear Or be ashamed in this democratic age of the God-given anointing for leadership. Now, this will only take a minute. um, And I know that these people are not the only leaders of Church Central. Terms and conditions apply. La, la. All right? But if you are a current elder of Church Central, I think that should be five of you. Um, Could you stand to your feet, please? If you're a current elder of Church Central. So I'll give you a hint. Mark, yeah, great. Thanks, guys. Thanks, guys. Yeah, okay. Now, these are not the only leaders. They're not perfect. They've all offended us once or twice, blah. But the Bible says, the Bible says that leaders are a gift to the church. And a mature church doesn't primarily tut but receives the gifts of our God, of leaders. And you five, we want to acknowledge that you are gifts to us. And we want to receive you in that heart. And whatever the future holds, you have led us and shepherded us superbly. And I would be nowhere without you five shepherding this church. We receive your gift. You're not perfect. We don't worship you. We receive you as a gift to us. If you agree, might you briefly, for time's sake, Applaud these guys. Thank you. Yeah. Feel free to grab a seat. All right. <laughs> Great. Now, if you're nervous that they're going to get a big head, 
let's stick the next point up. We need to also see that leaders are so not the big deal in the body. And that, I thought, might have got an amen, but you're all scared. That they are not the big deal in the body. Verse 12. We often think that it's professional Christians or badge-wearing Christians who do God's work. And we even use language, don't we? Like they're in ministry, as if the rest of us aren't in ministry. And no, no, they're in full-time, some of them, ministry, as if we're like part-time in Christianity. (laughs) Verse 12 does not say that the leaders do God's work. Verse 12 says the leader's responsibility is to equip who? God's people to do his work and build up the church, the body of Christ. Yes, leaders are crucial, hence up on your feet, etc. But look who does God's work in Birmingham. It is God's people. It is not God's person. It is not God's professionals. It is God's people. It's us. We do God's work. We're in full-time ministry. Leaders are not the big deal. The church is the big deal. And the job of any leader, as we multiply eldership teams in the site slash churches, the job of any leader is not to do all the stuff to enable everyone else to spectate and either clap or tut. The job of the leaders is to stoop and equip all of us to do the work of God. And I want to ask you, do you see yourself like that? Do you see yourself as someone who does the work of God? Or do you see a few up the front as those who do the work of God? I think God wants to radically shift our mindset. We do the work of God as the body, the different diverse body. This means, and some of you will love this, that the church is not like a Coldplay concert, okay? Some of you will be sad, some of you will be flipping relieved. The church is not like a Coldplay concert. I think we're okay. It's just been a little moment. Okay, we're good, we're good, we're good. No, you're good, man. Hey, dude, I flipping love Coldplay too, so it's fine, it's fine. The church is not a Coldplay concert. I've been to a few Coldplay concerts, and uh, the same thing happens at the end of every Coldplay concert. Chris Martin and his merry men stand on the stage hugging nicely, and they say something like this over strummed chords. Thanks so much. You guys are the best. Thanks so much for coming out. You enable us to do the best job in the world. Thank you, everyone on the back row. We do the best job in the world. Thank you. And sometimes we think that the church is like that. Like, we give our cash to enable a few to do the job. And actually, if anything, you flip that image around. And the people of God, it's probably an unhelpful image in some senses, are on the stage because there's music to make of service to God in our city. The people of God are on the stage. And the leaders are sitting there cheering us on. And the people of God say to our leaders every now and again, thank you so much. You enable us to do the best job in the world, serving God in our city. That's what the church is like. That's what the church is to be like. A mature church, a beautiful church, has no spectators. There is music for us to make together, and we need you. So to help you remember this, I want you to stand up if you are currently 
not an elder of Church Central. Please stand to your feet. Now just look around the room and see the manifold wisdom of your God. How ridiculous would it be? How pitifully small a vision would we be able to live out if the guys sitting down were the ones that we thought did the work of God? If Jonathan Bell was trying to bless your neighbor with a hot meal, it would be weird. He doesn't know them. <laughs> if, if Owen was going to be like, I don't know, whatever, doing your thing on your hospital ward, why is he there? Right? <laughs> No, we do the work of God. We do the work of God, and they equip us. The leaders equip us to do the work of God. What wisdom of God? How many more streets and hospitals and houses and playgrounds get blessed when the church, not the Christian professionals, the church, see we do the work of God? Now, what could we do in our city if everyone on their feet felt the anointing of God to go and do his work? That's the church. That's the body. Whatever color you are, wherever you're from, your gender, that's the church. A diverse body who goes in the name of Jesus. Cheered on by these guys. Grab your seat. You say, and we're quick here, maybe... Um, Johnny, can I get the band back? Or not? Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Just quickly, we're going to uh, let you go and get your kids in a second if you need to, and then we're going to be able to respond still after that. You need to quickly see, if you think, look, hey, Rich, you've got me wrong, I can't do any of this. You need to see two really quick things about the rest of us. Struggle to know what to call us. The rest of us. That'll do. You need to see, A, each of us are gifted. Each of us are gifted. Verse 7, he has given each one of us a special gift. Rarely does Bible grammar excite me. But verse 4 to 6 of Ephesians 4 talks about God as the God of all of us. He's the God over all. He's the Lord of all. One God over all. And verse 7 switches from all to each. We need a theology of allness. We need a theology of eachness. Where Jesus walks along the row and talks to each of us and says, you are gifted. Turn to the person next to you and shout pretty aggressively, you are uniquely gifted. Now, sometimes we don't like saying that we're gifted. Sometimes we don't like saying that we're gifted. Come back. Come back. Sometimes we don't like saying that we're gifted because if you walk around saying I'm uniquely gifted, it sounds ridiculous. But to say that you're gifted and to believe when you go back to your site meeting that's going, anyone got anything to contribute on the mic? Or your work where there's work for you to do. And to believe in the name of Jesus that you are uniquely gifted. He's not arrogant. It doesn't glorify you it glorifies the giver of the gift it's a gift it's not about you it's a gift you are gifted you're not deserving I know you have been gifted and the second thing each of us therefore has special work to do verse 16 as each part does its own special work it helps the other parts grow so that the whole body is healthy and growing and full of love that language of each again with your unique gifting and background and culture and language and passion and emphases, you 
have specific, special work to do. Do you believe that about yourself? Or is it a few of the ones at the front? Each of you.